Hello, you are listening to Archive on DubLab with Liam O'Mahony. Today I'll be sitting down with CL, a Toronto-based DJ, promoter, and member of the Disc Woman Collective. We'll be talking about the Toronto dance music scene, her party series work in progress, and her recent record on Peach Discs. Thanks for listening to Archive. What was your introduction to this world? Hmm. My introduction to the world of dance music was probably pretty embarrassing. Um, I grew up, uh, you know, exposed to music from a very young age. And some of the earliest um, styles of music I came to love were, you know, hip hop, as well as uh British rock, Britpop, I really loved Blur and Pulp and bands like that, but I was never really interested in dance music. Actually, I really hated dance music for most of my life. I had very strong opinions about music my whole life. I really knew what I liked and what I didn't like, and dance music just never really appealed to me. Um, When I was older, when I was in university, I got started volunteering at a radio station on campus uh, called CFRC 101.9. And um, it's the oldest radio station in Canada. And it had a huge influence on me because I had a radio show there for four years. I met a lot of people, a lot of uh, a lot of older kids that really exposed me to a lot of music that I wouldn't have, you know, come across on my own, especially where I came from and like suburb in the suburbs um in canada in high school um but i had some friends this was around like 2000 mid 2000s it was like around the time of blog house and uh, minimal techno it was when tech house was really becoming super popular and very annoying and the intersection of you know minimal tech And that was really my exposure to dance music. Some of the earlier songs I really liked. uh, I kind of got into Blockhouse via Electro Clash. I got into Fisher Spooner, Goldfrap. Miss Kitten and the Hacker were huge uh, for me. I really, really loved Miss Kitten. I still like Miss Kitten a lot. Um, I think that kind of vent, um, that entry point makes a lot of sense because, uh, at that point, I was really into post-punk and no wave. And um, I think that kind of invariably leads into Electro Clash, that kind of electronic music, which is still very vocal driven, um, but synth heavy, really grooving bass lines and that swaggering, that swagger, that attitude from no wave and post-punk. You can hear a lot of it in Electro Clash. And from there, I got into Blockhouse 
and got into um, sort of at the same time, because they're not related at all, I got into um, Ellen Allian um, and Be Pitch Control because I was running a radio show for four years that centered around female musicians. Um, and I heard about her um, through Miss Kitten and the Hacker. And, um, you know, she was kind of a powerhouse, still is kind of a major powerhouse. And um, that was really sort of my earliest exposure to dance music and especially sort of a feminine power in dance music. At what point did you make the leap from I enjoy this music to I want to participate in this music? I guess I made the leap from I enjoy this music to I want to participate in this music. Um sort of because I was already participating in the music, I, I kind of worked, it kind of happened backwards. I was already a radio DJ and I took that volunteer position very, very creatively because I was a part of this community and everyone around me was really passionate about music. And um, I wanted, I sort of got into electronic music after I'd already started participating in this community, running a radio show and DJing every month. No, actually I had a bi-weekly show. So when I got into dance music, um, I was already DJing on the radio, which obviously is not the same thing as DJing in clubs, but I really enjoyed being a disc jockey. Uh, you know, I grew up making mixtapes for boyfriends and uh, people I liked, etc. And like, it was a natural progression to go from selecting music um, to give to someone to selecting music for a crowd of people to make them dance. I think um, when I first got into more electronic music, I was doing my radio show and I was listening to a lot of mixes uh, that were being put out at that time, like Fabric, for example, Fabric Live mixes and DJ Kicks and things like that. And listening to those mixes really inspired me to want to give it a try myself. So I pirated uh, a copy of Virtual DJ and tried to mix things in there. I was already starting to sort of participate in that sort of nightlife. Me and some of our friends would throw parties uh, in our campus housing and there were sort of the earliest quote-unquote raves I ever threw. Me and my friend, we would DJ together, invite a whole bunch of friends, and just like play uh, dance music all night. Uh, very, you know, rudimentary mixing on my part, but that was my earliest exposure to mixing electronic music on these really crappy rack mount Newmark CDJs. I don't even have the 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 platter and so that was like how I learned to do it um and it made a lot of sense to play in front of an audience I really love to share music with people it like made complete sense um and DJing uh and is so unique to electronic music um more so than any other style where you can, we're enjoying the music is itself an act of participation in a way because it takes enjoying the music to make you want to participate in it and to participate in it and to 
select it for other people's enjoyment. They all kind of go hand in hand. And that was what I found really beautiful, refreshing, the accessibility of electronic music, even, you know, in the early to mid-2000s when technology was not the way it is now. It was still more accessible than any other genre of music, um, especially, you know, growing up, I was a hardcore conservatory pianist and going from that to DJing was just so different, like completely different. Were there people in your community or scene that you drew inspiration from or who acted as a mentor to you? Absolutely. Um, I think having mentors in your music scene is um, essential and paramount to the growth of a music scene. Definitely my earliest exposure to a mentor was uh, volunteering at the campus radio station, running my radio show for four years. My radio show was called Lady Flash, um, which was named after an indie rock band from that time called The Go Team. They had a song called Lady Flash. And when I was doing the show, the, the manager at the radio station was a friend of mine who was three years older than me. So like he was almost about to graduate when we became really good friends and I became friends with all of their friends and they got me into a lot of really great bands and we used to just hang out and like drink beers and talk all night and listen to records. And he was the person that got me into the more electronic part of uh, of music, which before that I, I really openly shunned. And um, so I would say that for sure he was someone um, who inspired me a lot and I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for him. And it's actually interesting. Recently on my European tour, when I played in Sheffield, he actually came to watch me, unfortunately, due to the poorly organized nature of that entire party. I didn't actually get to see him that night. I was really bummed. But uh, Mike, if you're listening, shout out to you. Um, so he was definitely my first mentor. I've had many, many mentors since then, um, you know, in my scene now. Um, my best friend, Nancy, she's really sort of like my my promoter mentor. When I first started throwing parties, I threw parties with her as work in progress. She already had years of experience booking really big acts like Jeff Mills and like, you know, Caribou, Fortet, these really big names. And she had tons of experience and she was kind of fed up with that sort of big, big room scene where it's all about like, you know, making these massive, massive, like financial risks and things like that. And she just wanted to book things that she liked. And it just worked so well. And she taught me so much about throwing parties, you know, balancing budgets, really boring stuff. And also like, really interesting stuff. Like, she inspired me to sort of look at more unconventional spaces. Uh, if it wasn't for her, I would have probably just stuck it in any place with a sound system. And so like, and really she also taught me so much about like, you know, the, that a really great party is more than just the sound. It's everything, you know, it's the visuals, the, the vibe, the, the world that you're building in that little room where you're throwing the party. It's everything plays a role. And uh, so for me, Nancy, she's another incredible mentor for me. 
And then my other promoter slash production slash DJ mentor is my great friend, Brian Wong, who has been producing and DJing in Toronto for the longest time uh, as Gingy. And um, he taught me just really, he taught me a lot of, I think, very important life lessons, like um, how to collaborate with people in your community, how much building like um, a network of people is intrinsic for the growth of an underground grassroots movement and how to make changes to your scene and how to be a like a leader that people would look up to. And all of these things are so important. And of course, the last mentor in my life is my very good friend who I throw all my parties with, Sandro Petrillo. He taught me how to use Ableton. So all of these people who are, you know, who I would consider some of my best friends, but without them, I wouldn't be here. Um, and I think as an artist and as a community member, for me, um, I don't think you can, at least for my work, it's very rooted in the community. I'm not just a lone producer who never goes out. I can be very extroverted and I, I love to rave and raving as an act plays a huge part in how I DJ and how I produce. And raving is a, is a social sort of activity. And without the people around me, the people that I share a dance floor with on a weekly basis, um, I wouldn't have any idea what I would be doing today. Can you talk about what the dance music culture in Toronto was like around the time that you were coming up? Um, it's hard to say. I have been DJing on and off uh, since I would say since 2005 when I was still when I wasn't living in Toronto I was living in a small town called Kingston Ontario just three hours outside of Toronto because I was away in school um, after I graduated from school I actually moved to South Korea for two years I didn't come back to Toronto until 2010 at that point. I had kind of fallen off of music a little bit and I hadn't listened to electronic music in ages. And the process of getting back to it was getting back into it was very long and intimidating a lot of times, but I never stopped loving music. Um, the opportunity presented itself when I came back to DJ a monthly party with a friend of mine that I knew from my CFRC radio days where we did um, a monthly Northern Soul Night. At that time, I was really into soul and disco and funk. And um, it was very much a labor of love. The only people that came were our friends that we guilt-tripped into coming. <laughs> and uh, we labored away for a really long time with like no, very little public support. Um, but I did it because I love the music and it, it was all that really mattered to me. I didn't really care about, you know, being trendy. Uh, it wasn't until around the time when I stopped that night and I started to play a hip hop night with another friend that through that friend, I met some other people that were more into the dance music scene. And I met Nancy and Brian, uh, who were, as I mentioned, uh, my mentors in Toronto and Nancy was really throwing a lot of parties then as part of Mansion and Foundry. And Brian was touring all over and playing Toronto and throwing parties. And I think um, around that time, it was like 2013. So it was sort of like bass music, end of tail end of dubstep, 
um, and sort of a resurgence of house and techno, the beginning of. And um, I had been so out of dance music that I didn't really know anything. I was just kind of, kind of slowly getting back into it, uh, going back to basics, digging back into the past. And I am the kind of person that really can learn very quickly. I have a very single-minded focus. And I just kind of absorbed it really, really, really quickly. And um, I started to go to parties, which, you know, back then I didn't really know anybody. And I felt pretty isolated. Uh, I think a lot of music scenes can be very hard to get into, very insular and a little clicky. Toronto is no different. And I found it challenging at first to make friends. But after kind of Brian and Nancy took me under their wings and they're sort of like community leaders in this music scene. They introduced me to other people. I met uh, my really good friend at the time, Serena, who now goes by Peach and lives in London. Um, You know, we connected and after that slowly started to throw parties um, because nobody was not because I, I really wanted a piece of the pie, but because I wanted to book someone that no one else was booking. And I was sick of waiting for other people to take a chance on this little known artist back then called project Pablo, who had only one tape to his name. Nobody wanted to book him, but I really believed in his music. I was obsessed with his 1080p tape. So I just reached out and took a chance. And the rest is history. After Project Pablo, I kind of, you know, felt like, oh, I got the bug. Because, like, not only did I did the party do really well and I made a little bit of money, I actually paid everyone extra. Like, I made enough that I was able to pay every artist on the bill extra money. That's, like, unheard of, you know? So I wanted to keep that going. And um, after that, certain opportunities came my way. This woman was just sort of like really coming up around that time in 2015. I think I saw them at, um, I saw them at Detroit Movement that year. And um, I was like so starstruck when I saw Am Fang and um, Frankie hanging out at uh, Detroit Threads um, with K-Hand, and I was just, like, huge fangirl, and I wanted to say something. Obviously, too shy, I didn't say hi to them. But I was like, I should book them, you know? Like, who... I I felt like this was the time to bring them. I know that some of my friends had booked them in Montreal for their very first out-of-New-York gig, and I sort of just chomped on it right away. Um, I think what helped me was sort of being already quite connected with friends in other cities on the internet, And that kind of made me kind of be ahead of the curve than a lot of other people in Toronto who like had heard of them, but didn't think it was like, maybe thought it was too early. Um, And I was just like, no, I'm going to bring them. And I couldn't really figure out what to call it. Um, And I I was talking to my friend Nancy at the time. I was like, do you want to bring this woman with me? We should do it together and we should call it work in progress after my radio show. And that party, like, I think sold out in like two weeks. It was ridiculous. It was only, we only found a space for that holds 200 people. And, um, you know, the demand was like almost like 800 people RSVP'd on Facebook. People were lined up down the block. It was crazy. And like the, that night 
I still remember just like the incredible feeling that you get. And I got along so well with all of the, all of the women of this woman and just, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. It was amazing. And, um, so me and Nancy decided we were going to keep doing work in progress parties. And after that, we booked Aurora Halal, Lena Willikins. We decided that we would also book, um, men sometimes as long as they sort of fell in line with our values. Like we weren't going to book like, you know, Constantine or something like that, you know, someone that's like, I know cares about women's issues and is not a jackass. So we booked people like Bill Converse and Matrix Men and made sure that, you know, the support was all women, etc. Because every work in progress lineup has to be a priority of women or um, a majority of women artists. Uh, whether they are headliners or support DJs, it's irrelevant as long as there's more women than there are men on the lineup. So um, we did that for a while and then you know, a year later, my friend Brian kind of said, you know, I want to start this thing called It's Not You, It's Me. You've been working at this work in progress thing for a while. Let's do these bigger parties. And It's Not You, It's Me parties were huge productions. We did like major, like full day festivals. We booked DJ Stingray and like really big names. I first fully became aware of It's Not You, It's Me when I read its fantastic Safer Spaces policy. Can you talk a bit about how this policy was developed? maybe uh, how you were involved. Okay. Well, the safer spaces policy, uh, actually I wrote that um, with a lot of help um, and um, research done by our safer spaces volunteers. Basically what happened, it was inspired at that time. It's not used. We had been going for a while. We had done maybe like six or seven parties by that point. It was the middle of summer. I had just gone to Unsound Toronto year two, had a terrible time. It was not like Unsound year one, which was amazing. Just like the best crowd, um, best music and like really, really good vibe. The thing with Toronto, the problem that has always plagued Toronto, as I'm sure it is the case in a lot of other cities, is that there's a lot of bros and in dance music and it's sort of like you know a coin toss every time you go out if you're going to get a good crowd or a bad crowd and that night it was really bad uh there were a lot of bros uh all my friends got touched i got touched i saw people i saw men wearing shirts that were really hate speech like walking around no one there's no sense of like enforcement of safety in any way whatsoever. Like, it was a logistical nightmare, very poorly disorganized. Like, if you wanted to leave the side room to go pee, you had to wait over an hour to get back inside. It was just bad. And that people were sort of buzzing about it for like a week after, talking about what went wrong, what happened. And I was particularly vocal about um, the bad vibe and the bad crowd. And I didn't understand how it went from what it was previously to what it was that year. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that it was, you know, that the people who organize Unsound Toronto in Toronto are not actually Unsound. They're an unrelated arts organization called Luminato who have no connection with 
electronic music in the city in any way whatsoever. So there are things that they would rather spend their money on, like a massive disco ball and like other fine art type of installations or like corporate branding and stuff like that. But like, they don't know anything about music. Like all the curation was all done remotely from Unsound Krakal and it was just put on and organized by Luminato, the fine art festival. And fine arts in Toronto especially is very white and conservative and stuffy and really could not be further apart from techno and dance music. And I was a, and it was around that time that we were doing our all day festivals at uh, the power plant and we were expecting a thousand people, which is much per day, which is a lot bigger than our normal sort of nighttime raves that we had been doing up until that point. So I kind of like called Brian frantic and I'm like, I can't do this party. If it's going to be like this, we need to figure out a, a policy. We need to figure out what we would, what we're going to do if people like some of these people come to our events because, you know, we're hosting it at a space that's going to take out a full page ad in the daily newspaper, Toronto star, then we're going to attract people who are from outside of the scene who don't understand the proper etiquette and who come here expecting to hook up and aren't here for the right reasons. And so I enlisted various friends of mine, people who were passionate about this issue, who also had a deep understanding of music and venues and raves. And they all helped me sort of look up various other safer spaces policies that were pulled from, you know, other cities, other rave collectives and things like that. I did a lot of reading. And then I sort of just cobbled together and wrote this thing. It took me so long. Um, What I really wanted to communicate, because our biggest concern was that we didn't want, um, like, for me personally, if that thing, if I had to write that for work in progress, I would have been a lot meaner (laughs) and a lot harsher. But there is a sense of when I'm working for It's Not You, It's Me, that because it's not specifically gendered um that i can't necessarily like make this all about women and trash the men and make them feel unwelcome like um as much as i would like that i have to kind of take that hat off and put on a different hat when i'm working for it's not you it's me that it's about everyone connecting everyone with each other and so i really wanted the safer spaces policy to reflect Not even just that it's unsafe for women, but that when it's unsafe for women, that it actually ruins, that it's, it ruins the party for everyone. That no matter who you are, if you love music, you should want to party in a space that's safe for women and for queer people. Because the foundation, the core of rave is freedom, right? Like, freedom to be yourself, freedom to let go on the dance floor, and not feel, like, afraid to be those things, because someone is going to sort of infringe on your space, or make fun of you for dressing a certain way, or, you know, grab you, because they think that because you feel free to 
be yourself, that your body is like public property of some sort, various things. I really wanted to connect that sort of social justice issue with the deeper issue of what makes dance music dance music at all. And I think I was able to do that. And I I did take a lot of notes from Brian as well. We worked on it together uh, towards the end, reading through it to make sure that it didn't, I didn't want to fill it with a lot of isms. There are a lot of safer spaces policies that I read, no shade on anything else, anyone else who choose to do this. But when I read them, like, you know, the sort of no racism, no sexism, blah, 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 like that's great. And, but I didn't, want it to be something like that. I wanted it to be prescriptive instead of ideological because, you know, when you use a lot of isms, there are a lot of things that are left up to interpretation and we didn't want there to be any confusion or room for misinterpretation. We wanted it to be clear that everything that you do that negatively affects other people will negatively affect the energy of this rave and the energy of the rave is the most important thing. When you come into the dance floor, you leave your bullshit at the door. You go there for the music to have a good time with your friends and not make other people feel uncomfortable. That was really what I wanted to communicate. And um, I'm still really proud of that. In the wake of the tragic ghost ship fire in Oakland, the safe space conversation has increasingly included a focus on the actual physical safety of the event spaces that these parties exist in. As someone who's promoted events in clandestine venues, how have you dealt with this? Ooh, hard question. Well, I think after the ghost ship fire, um, we were everybody just kind of panicked. We had a number of venues shut down in Toronto. Um because of doxing from 4chan, uh, like neoconservative douchebags who um, wanted or hated us for existing. Um, For me, I think I actually stopped a fire from happening once um, inside uh, and It's Not You, It's Me party, one of our full day events at the power plant. Someone had smoked a joint, dropped it on the ground and it lit a jacket on fire I managed to stomp it out. Um, I think, how do you deal with that? It's just when you work with a lot of DIY spaces that are run by um, venue owners who are business people and not necessarily music people who have no connections to the music scene, it is extremely challenging to enforce any kind of your own ideas of safety in their space because they feel like you're telling them how to do their job and they are extremely defensive. Like after the ghost ship fire, I had so many fights with the venue that I use about fire safety because he didn't have a fire exit And we were really concerned, um, you know, for example, about turning on smoke machines and making sure that the smoke machine won't trip the fire alarms because the fire alarms are connected to the fire department. All of these things, you know, like how do you maintain safety while still continuing to do events in spaces that aren't being regulated? with the safe with the same like 
standards that other spaces are. The only way you can really do that is be vigilant yourself. It's all about the promoters because I can't change this venue owner. They hold all of the powers in their hands. If anything goes, if anything happens, it's, you know, unsafe. It's on me, but it's also on them. And so, you know, certain things like it's not just fire safety. It's also harm reduction um, when it comes to substance abuse. Um, so certain things like making sure that my safety crew are trained uh, on how to administer anti-OD uh, kits in Canada, in Toronto. Those are legal. You can just buy them from the drugstore and they'll train you on how to administer naloxone if someone is um, ODing. Uh, most of Canada is going through an opiate crisis, especially with fentanyl. And there's been a lot of o- overdose deaths um, from that and So that's one of the things that we can do. Another thing is literally carrying a fire extinguisher in your car um, because they're free. You can get them from the fire department. Um, Buying fire retardant spray and spraying them on curtains. And just, you know, being like, um, being a massive stickler and not being afraid to be like, mean about it when you're running an event. If I see someone smoking inside my party, I kick them out. I yell at them. I shame them. I don't care because you're putting other people's safety at risk. And when you smoke indoors in Canada, it's highly illegal. You can't do that. And like for a while, I was just like, I've always been someone that, you know, I don't go out of my way to enforce rules that I think are are pointless but if they serve a purpose for you know the interest of public safety i will enforce it till the day i die and i don't care who i offend because um i don't care if i have to refund your money and kick you out it's like if you're going to put other people's lives at risk then i'm going to do something about it so things like that making sure to buy um oil-based um liquid for the excuse me making sure to buy um oil-based fluid for fog machines instead of water-based because it doesn't trip the smoke machine uh sorry the the fire alarm as much keeping it as far away from the alarms as possible um simple things like that and just like you know not when i'm throwing an event making sure that i'm totally sober and can keep an eye on the events and not being a mess and, you know, making myself available to people on the dance floor um, in case people need me. And also having volunteers who are my friends, who come to my events, who understand my events and can keep an eye on things on the dance floor and report to me if something is wrong, if something, because I can't be everywhere at once. I have to DJ or I have to stay at the stand at the door or I have to do a cash drop or deal with the venue, blah, 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 blah. And like all these things, you know, it really helps to have like sort of eyes and ears on the dance floor to let me know when things are unsafe. If someone is in a K-hole, for example, that we wouldn't just kick them out immediately, that we would actually sit with them, have our volunteers look after them until they feel okay enough to take a cab home by themselves. 
these are the little things that we can do to show empathy because like for me it's very natural i think of the people that come to my parties as like my family almost it's like i don't know everybody but i'm so used to seeing their faces and even though the audience is growing more and more every day when i see them i want to I want to make sure they're okay. I want them to feel safe at my parties and I don't want anything to happen to them because they're my friends. And so it's just little things that you can do because, and yeah, making sure that I don't oversell the capacity. A lot of warehouse spaces don't have a specific capacity number, but you can calculate it yourself if you care to. Not everybody does this. Um, not everybody, not every promoter keeps a, like, um, keeps a tight sort of lock on how many people come through the doors, making sure the dance floor is not uncomfortable. These are all things that I think about because if the dance floor is too uncomfortable, people get touched, you know, unwanted touching uh, or like if there's any kind of issue, there's a huge sort of block in people to get to the front doors or the back doors now i only work with venues that have fire escapes you know and like you know basic fire safety measures are in place um and always making sure there's enough security guards for the right amount of people like i've heard of people hiring one security guard for a crowd of 700 people that's just unacceptable you're putting your guests lives in danger and that's just not okay to make a buck. At the end of the day, this is a community of people that are all here for the same things that you are. And you're a shitty person if you're not looking after them. That's it. I wanted to talk about your own DJ career a bit more. So in 2015, you began a residency at Bambi's. Can you tell me more about that club's significance to Toronto's dance music culture and your time there? Sure. Um, in 2015, I started to play weekly on Sundays. Wow, you know so much about my career. <laughs> um, yeah, in 2015, I started playing every Sunday at Bambi's. I got it because I was Facebook friends with the venue owner, Mikey, and he liked some of the music I was posting on Facebook, and he asked me if I wanted to play a thing there with another Toronto DJ. His name is Andre. He goes by R, and he's part of a group called Ebony when they've released on, like, Cream Organization and Opal Tapes, and he's a very talented guy. And, like, we started DJing together on Sundays, and um, it, it changed my entire life, I think. It's not really a big deal, I think, at the time, playing weekly on Sundays, but um, it really, it got me closer to the community. It introduced me to a lot of people. It taught me how to throw events. And um, Bambi's is our sort of dance music central um, in Toronto. Even if all the other venues close down, then I feel like I, I trust that Bambi's will always be here. It is a legal space. You can go there every night of the week and reliably find good dance music there except for Wednesdays when they have Bambi's karaoke which is also super fun um and it's just um a really great vibe nice plants uh nice lighting fog a really great staff uh team that works there everybody that works there is like a DJ or a producer or both you know everybody's super into the music and it just feels like 
uh, family. I mean, I still DJ pretty much every month at Bambi's. Uh, we're all friends with the security guy. <laughs> like, it's when I go there, it feels like I'm going home. And at what point did you start to think more seriously about DJing as a career path? Was there any particular moment or was it a gradual process? I don't know if I ever really thought about it seriously as a career path until it already started to happen seriously. I was afraid to think about it seriously because growing up, I always really loved music. Music was my first love. And um, I always sort of leaned or had an interest towards more artistic endeavors. But my parents were really conservative. And also, I'm an only child of immigrants from China. They were very worried about me being able to make a living doing following my dreams. When I was younger, I wanted, you know, I told my parents I wanted to be uh, like a singer or a musician, or I told them I wanted to be an actor. And they kind of discouraged me from all of them because, you know, they're like, well, it was the 90s. And they were just like, you're a Chinese girl. And there are no famous Chinese American pop stars or actors, which they're not wrong about, you know. And for them, they were like, you know, you would have to work, you have to be two times as good as everyone else and work two times as hard as everyone else. And still you might not make it. And like, that was really discouraging. It kind of happened by accident. Almost. I, I was starting, this was in sort of mid 2016 around the spring when I had already been doing parties for a while. They were going really well. And I was starting to play in other cities more and more. I had been booked to play in Chicago at smart bar and I was terrified, just like so terrified. And um, I really wanted to be prepared for that show. And by that point, I was already finding it an incredible struggle trying to juggle um, a full-time job working in publishing nine to five while also throwing parties on the weekends and DJing almost every weekend when I wasn't throwing parties. And it was just, I had no spare time at all and slept for five hours every night. Like it was just, and I d developed this medical condition. It was just my, my life was so stressful and my work was starting to suffer at my job. And I think my, my, my managers noticed and I got pulled into the office and they're just sort of like, you know, don't think we haven't noticed that you are clearly focused on other things. And they kind of gave, they offered me a way out of sort of a mutually beneficial me leaving the company where I got like, they helped me out a lot where like, they still gave me a reference for future jobs. Um, but I also received, I was effectively laid off. So I was able to get like a severance package and employment benefits. So that for the first while when I was working, when I was like, trying to break it as a DJ, I still had a little bit of money to fall back on. Um, and that made a world of difference. So in a way, I didn't really think seriously about DJing as a career path until I had already become a full-time DJ and promoter. At that point, I started to think, hey, maybe I should focus on this. So recently you were added to Disc Woman's roster. I was wondering if you could talk more about your background with the collective, how you got to know them, and how that grew into a working relationship. 
Um, sure. I was recently added to this woman's roster in, I believe, 2017, uh, end of 2017. Actually, I had the discussion with Frankie over the uh, end of the summer. I think it was like late August. I called her up and I was like, hey, I, there's something I want to discuss with you. And I had wanted to be in this woman since like the day I saw them at Detroit Threads and I was like fangirling so hard and I wanted to talk to them, but I didn't. <laughs> um, it was obviously a huge dream and I was waiting for them to ask me. And one day I was like talking to my friend and just kind of frustrated that no one has asked me, even though I was about to put out my first record and they knew I was going to put out my first record and I was like going to play for like freaking uh i was gonna play for boiler room and i was like oh my god why aren't they signing me and then i was just like my friend was like why are you waiting for them to sign you why don't you ask them and like that conversation changed my life i'll never forget like i was just like a switch had flipped on in my head and i was like you know what you should ask them why wait for things to come to you and so I like worked up the courage. I wrote this long email. You know, up until that point, I had enjoyed a really positive relationship with this woman. I've booked almost everyone in this woman, not just Umfang and Volvox, but also DJ Haram, Shy Boy. I'm gonna bring Student, um, and then various other artists that will happen down the road. And like, I just love them and especially like i've become very close friends with emma umfang as well as frankie and we had done like panels together we traveled together they booked me for my first shows in new york and chicago you know i owe everything to them so i don't know why i was so afraid to ask them um but you know people you you kind of imagine all sorts of things um, especially if you're someone like me who is extremely neurotic and has all sorts of anxieties. and But I just, you know, overcame that. I, I talked to Frankie. She thought it was a great idea. And the rest is history. <laughs> like, it was nothing else to it. It's so refreshing to work with women that, like, really care about each other, are fiercely loyal and protective of each other. And that kind of relationship makes me cry just thinking about it i'll never have that relationship with men i don't think i'll never have that relationship with non-feminist women either it's such a special special feeling and it means the world to me that i'm a part of this collective and it means the world to me that it's the start of many 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 more years together now i want to talk a little bit about your own music productions so you came from a background that involved some classical training which I guess isn't always the norm for dance music producers. How did you draw on this when deciding to make dance music? Well, I come from a classical background, um, classical music. It is the first music I ever came in contact with when I was growing up. My parents discovered I had perfect pitch when I was like two. There's like an old voice recording of me singing um, along and like uh to this song that my dad is playing on his guitar and i'm holding like the pitch and my parents used to make do this fun party trick when they would have friends over 
and they would hum a note and then I would just like make me, they would make me go over to the piano and be able to press the key that they're humming. And I could do that. And that's how they figured out that I had perfect pitch. But my parents both love music. My dad, I grew up with my dad playing the, like the guitar, singing to my mom. And like, it was just, what they love they're still heavily involved with music to this day obviously very different music than what i'm into but um uh it was something that i loved from a very young age but unfortunately they pushed me too much and it kind of ruined it for me that kind of dry conservatory upbringing the way you learn music it is so rigid the exact opposite of how i approach music that it was it made me hate it. When I completed my grade 10, I just like never wanted to look at it again. And after that happened, I was like 16. I didn't really touch the piano. My parents sold the piano and we had like a keyboard and I didn't even, I put it away. It's just like gathering dust. And then um, I just went to purely listening to music. And so I think there was a lot of anxiety about playing music for a really, really long time after that, that like, I still love music, that love will never be gone, which is why I think I was drawn to DJing. It was still a way to participate in music without actually like playing for five hours every day. And in my mind, I guess it was either one or the other. (laughs) Um, So for a long time, I was really afraid to make music. I was afraid that my classical training would make me a bad musician because classical training, I think there is very little room for imagination and coloring outside of the lines, Um, improvisation, things like that. My parents wouldn't even let me learn how to play jazz piano or like jam and just noodle on the piano. I wasn't allowed. I had to play my homework. And so I think that anxiety I've carried with me throughout my whole life. Um, when everybody was encouraging me to f- produce music, I was like, no, I, I don't want to do that. It's really scared me. And I was afraid to try and then fail. But that year I was like, you know, don't be led by your fear, just try something. And then my friend was like, you know, I can teach you how to use Ableton. And so we started to take lessons and what, turned me off of production way early on is that it's very technical and related to technology and like, especially like computer programming, things like that. I'm not good at that stuff at all. It's not my strong suit. It was not a thing that I was ever encouraged at a young age. And I find you need to learn to speak that language from a very young age or as you get older, it's harder to make your brain bend that way. So I was really grateful that I had someone who could teach me how to use Ableton. Without Sandro, I would not have made my record like within three months after I started learning how to produce, basically, in Ableton. Um, it surprisingly, despite all of my fears, my musical training helped me tremendously um, in producing my first few tracks that eventually became my Peach Discs record. Um, I think that sense of melody, harmony, and rhythm is something that I, is a language that I learned to speak from the age, from an infancy, you know, I was two years old. I can't unlearn that. And so 
when I look at some of my other friends who are making music or have been making music for a long time, and I tell them, you know, these were the tracks that I made three months after I started learning how to use Ableton, and they're just like shocked that I'm able to do that. And part of the reason, or the only reason why I'm able to do that is because of my musical training. So I heard that Shanti Celeste signed your tracks to Peach Dis after hearing them in a club setting. Can you talk about your relationship with Shanti and how the record came together? With Shanti, no, the story is that um, I was booked to play a party in Toronto uh, by some friends of mine who run a collective called Deep Gold. They booked Shanti to play and they asked me to open just before her. And my good friend, Serena slash Peach, played with Shanti a week before in London and she was telling me about how Shanti asked her to send her music. And I was like, ooh, maybe she'll ask me to send her music. I don't care if she doesn't ask me. I'll just offer it anyways. Because I had a few tracks that I was sitting on. And I was like, maybe she'll like them. But I wasn't even sure if they were like good enough to send. Because like I had shown them to a few friends and not everybody liked them. And I didn't know what to think about them. And I was like, maybe they're not ready. These are only like my third, fourth, and fifth tracks. Maybe I need more time. But... She just asked me at the end, I stayed until the end, I played, she played, and in the end when they were like setting everything up, she was talking to me and she's like, do you make music? And I was like, yes, I do actually make music. Like I had been waiting for her to ask me all night. And then um, I like sent it to her like the next day because I'm a huge nerd. I sent it to her and then she wrote back like immediately and was just like, oh my God. I love them. Are these signed? They must be signed, right? Please tell me they're not signed. I just thought it was like the cutest email. Like you could just feel that she was genuinely interested and enthusiastic about the tracks I had sent her. And I just felt so happy. I really didn't, I could not have predicted that she wanted to sign all three tracks on an EP. And not only did she want to sign them, she like wanted them so badly that she thought for sure that they were already signed and she was like I know she was playing a tour and she had played with other friends of mine in other cities and they reported to me that she was talking to them about my tracks to them like oh my god did you I just got these tracks from this girl and like named Cindy and then everyone's like oh my god Cindy and it like made my year obviously i was so happy especially because i think she is one of the most talented producers in the game and writes some of the most beautiful melodies i've ever heard and so to have her say that was just it yeah it made my year um so you know we are still friends (laughs) we talk to each other uh, pretty often I played with her on my European tour. We had an amazing time in Brighton. Me, her, and Hodge played her first, her opening Peach Discs party at Patterns. Um, It was such an amazing time. And uh, she took me out record digging the following week. We had Chinese food in London. She took me to like the most amazing record shop ever in London like I flipped out and you know I still send her music and um she gives me feedback and like we talk like I just love her I respect her a lot and she's very supportive of like 
up and coming artists. And I just love people that are like that, who don't care about how big you are or how like hype you are, who like want to take a chance on nameless nobodies that nobody knows and, you know, kind of share them with the world. I just, she has a, an effervescence and, um, innocence in her passion and love for music that, you know, is more like someone who's just like, like 14 years old and just discovered music for the first time. And that's really special. And I want to surround myself with people like that. So I hope that, you know, this is a relationship that'll continue for forever. (laughs) How do you see your role as a highly visible figure in Toronto's dance music community changing as your profile as an artist increases? Um, I will never leave Toronto, knock on wood. My romantic life partner lives here. Um, His job is here. Our families are here. I have zero plans of moving to New York or to Berlin or Amsterdam or London for my career. Um, My goal this entire time of being a DJ and being a promoter before I even started making music was to put the city on the map and make Toronto a scene that I can be proud of, that I won't be embarrassed when I go to other cities and be like, I'm from Toronto, you know, like, so I think that I will continue to be a part of the music scene here. Even as I travel more and more, um, play in other cities, spend longer time away from my home turf, I will always look forward to coming back here, seeing my friends, being involved in the community here. I've never really truly felt like I was a part of a community. Maybe not since I was part of CFRC when I was younger um, in university. That community feeling is the most, the closest thing I've ever found to like having a family. You know, I come from a really small family. I'm an only child. I don't have any siblings. All my extended family members are in China. So I've never been able to like go home for the holidays and be part of this big group of people and everyone's like talking excitedly or shouting excitedly at top volume. They're so excited to see each other. I have found that with the community here. There's, you know, tough days good days, days when I want to throw in the towel, days when I hate everybody and I'm like, fuck this place, I'm moving to New York, etc. But I don't think I'll ever give it up. Uh, It means so much. And I'm going to do everything I can as my artist profile increases to use my platform responsibly to do what I can to make this music scene more hospitable for younger promoters, just like me when I was starting out, younger musicians, DJs, you know, there are only certain things I can do to change about the economics of art in capitalism. These are big things, bigger things than me. And I don't know if there's anything I can do to make a difference, but I have to at least try. And my mantra with throwing parties and promoting events, I've always thought of it as very much a community endeavor, that I have a social responsibility to the members of my community, and that 
it's my job as a promoter to leave the scene in a better shape than it was when I first came to it. And that's still my goal. That will always be my goal as long as I live here. And um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Well, thanks for sitting down with me and thanks to everybody for listening.